Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning and uh, delight, delight to see uh, old friends and uh, new friends and those that are visiting for the first time, you're, you're most welcome to be here. We have our, our good friends, Don and Little Winings, who've been here with us this week and be this week. They leave next Saturday uh, to go back to Kansas, I believe it is, and uh, we served with them in Australia. They were there for 30 years. And uh, so it's a delight, delight to be with you and uh, to worship with you again. <clears throat> Let's go to John chapter 1. <clears throat> it's good to see the rain, isn't it? After such a dry summer. The Lord has blessed us with the rain and the grass has already come back and we're glad for that. I know you are glad for that, Sean. All right, follow with me as we read from verses 43 through 51 and we'll go back, pick up where we left off last week with a little bit of a review. John chapter 1 verse 43 And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We find in this passage the ongoing task of Jesus bringing his disciples to himself. First, it's disciples finding disciples, and now it's Jesus finding disciples on his own. The last time we were in this passage, we were concentrating on this passage. Uh, The next day, he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And we were looking at those at that passage, and we saw in the passage that Jesus had decided or desired to go to Galilee. Now, why did he desire to go there? It was because there was a disciple there that he would call to himself. The man named Philip, who he went to find. And this is the way that it always happens. Jesus seeks after his own. 
No one seeks after God by themselves. We know that from Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul tells us that no one seeks after God. No one. But God certainly does the seeking. He sends out the holy hound of heaven and he sniffs out all of those whom God will call to himself. He does it with the gospel. We saw also last time that there is no distance to which God will not go. There is no obstacle that he will not remove or overcome to bring his elect people, his chosen ones, to himself, to the Savior. That means he will conquer any sin, no matter how terrible it might be. He will send his gospel to any place on earth, uh, no matter how difficult it is to get there. He will defeat any condition or circumstance, no matter how hopeless or helpless it may appear to be. He will send his gospel to any people, any person, any people group on earth, no matter how shameful or how wicked they may be. God will go the distance to redeem his people And he proved that by sending his son, his own son, to die as a substitute for sinners. We looked at that. We see it throughout the scriptures. The son of God came to seek and to save those that were lost. And that is exactly what he did. Now, Jesus found Philip. And when he found him, he said to him, Follow me. There is a lot wrapped up in those two little words, follow me. This was a deliberate encounter by Jesus with a divine command from the Messiah for Philip to become his disciple. This is what happens when Jesus calls people to himself through the gospel message. It is a divine encounter with God. It means that it means to become a close companion with a spiritual union, developing a likeness to the one followed. The command to follow meant that Philip had to count the cost of what it meant to be Jesus' disciple. He began to look We began to look at at the terribly misunderstood notion in our time of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is an irresistible directive given to sinners. It means that they would have to forsake all that they had to do the will of Christ. That means that the disciples' inner desire would be to seek the things of God and to carry out God's commands. This is true of every culture. It is true of every people. No matter what their, their life or their lifestyles are like, when a person is called by God to repent of their sins and follow Christ, they become his disciple They lose their own self-will and interest for the interest of their Savior. 
So we began looking at the at a sort of a detailed view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so I'm going to do a quick review of these first two things that we saw last week, and then we'll move on into new territory. First of all, it means to die to self-interest. To be a follower of Christ is to die to self-interest. <clears throat> this is what Jesus meant in Luke 29 or Luke 9:23 when he said, "If anyone would come after me, which is his way of saying follow me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." Take up his cross daily and follow me. To bear the cross means to die to self. The cross was the emblem of death for criminals who had broken the law and were deserving of death. Does that sound like you and me? Who have broken, who had broken God's law, who had insulted the holiness and righteousness of our God every day and were deserving to die. Those who were condemned to die on the cross had to carry their cross to the place of execution, much as we see in the narrative of Jesus having to carry his cross with the other two who carried their crosses to the place of execution on Golgotha. This is why Jesus said in John, in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me or follow me cannot be my disciple. No one is a disciple of Christ that does not bear his cross. That does not die to self-interest. The scriptures speak expressly to this in so many places. We looked at a few of them. Colossians 3, Romans 6, Matthew 10, John 11. Over and over again, this is stated in the scriptures that we are dying to self-will and worldly evil And when we die to self-will and worldly evil, it speaks of our willingness to be a disciple who follows Christ. We fail so often in this area. And yet the Lord Jesus is tells us once again, pick up your cross, bear it, die to self. Over and over again we have to do this. That's why he said daily. It's a daily thing. Second, to follow Jesus means that Christ is above everything and becomes to us the dearest person in life. This is what Jesus meant when he taught in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Now, he's just about covered all human relationships there, hasn't he? And that's what he's talking about, human relationships. But he's left one out so far. 
And then he hits it when he says, yes, and his own life. In other words, we must, in our own life, show that Jesus is the most important person, the dearest person to us, more than anyone else that exists. More than our children, more than our wife or our husband, more than our parents. He says, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. Does that mean that we literally have to hate our families? No. It was, we're commanded in Scripture many places to love our families. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves his, his church. Parents are to love their children and discipline them in the Lord. Wives love their husbands. We're not commanded to hate them literally. We're commanded to love Christ in such a way that every other human relationship looks off. It looks, why would you, why would you love Jesus so much that it, that you would not do this for your, for your family or your friend? People don't understand the love that a disciple has for Christ. They can't understand someone leaving their home and going around the world and spending their life in a foreign place while moms and dads and brothers and sisters are left behind. Believe me, those left behind suffer just as much as those who go. Doesn't mean we can't love our family and friends, but that must, those loves must not supersede our love for Christ. Our relationship with Christ is to be above all other human relationships. And human relationships are tenuous at the very best. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, the world therefore hates you. We've gotten a little taste of that during this whole COVID thing. Where people have accused others of hating simply because they do not acquiesce to the wishes of those in power. I've been accused of it. I'm sure you have too. Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? You're going to... You're going to... to Get some pushback when Jesus becomes the most important person in your life. Jesus would challenge Peter after the Lord's resurrection on these earthly relationships. Peter, do you love me more than these? There are some other scriptural things that come with following Christ. This is where I stopped last week. To follow Christ means that we live in the light 
of his kingdom and not of the world. Jesus said in John 8 again, he spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul writes in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What is that? Walk in Him. It is the walk of His kingdom light. We've been transferred, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And therefore, we are to walk in light, not in darkness. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. Verse, look at verse 6, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. John writes, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. You see that word ought? That word ought means to be obligated to. To be bound to something, to do something, to be, to be obliged to someone or something. What are we obliged to do? We are obliged to walk in the light that God has given us through His Word and through the relationship that we have as His child. Notice the next thing. To follow Christ means that we live in the knowledge of eternal life that is found in Him. I used to tell people right after I was saved and worked in an aircraft hangar with 70 other guys. I was the only, I was one other Christian. He was a civilian, worked on the engine, so he wasn't around the other guys as much as I was. I was the only Christian in the place at the time. And I used to tell them, I'm going to live forever. Well, they'd just laugh and sneer and carry on, you know. But it's true. It's true. And that's the way we ought to think. Oh, this body will die. But my soul will never die. And neither will yours in Christ. You see, we're, we are protected by the Savior from the second death. We, we may have experienced the first death, which is the death of this body, but we will not experience the second death because we are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was very adamant about this in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life. I used to read this to people. I said, yeah, look here what it says. I give him eternal life. He gave me eternal life. He said he gave it to me. I either believe that or I don't. But if I do believe it, then I can live in that. That means I don't have to fear death, even though physically I don't want it to happen. And neither do you. We may come to a point where we would Appreciate it happening. But he gives them eternal life. And then he emphasizes the eternality of it by saying, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are safe in the hand of Christ. 
And if that's not enough, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So we're in Christ's hand and then his hand is in the father's hand. I'd say we're pretty safe. We need to live in that. We are not like the rest of mankind that live in the fear of death and circumstance. We have life and we can live in the knowledge of that life because that life is in us. Through the indwelling spirit, no one can take it from us. No one. Don't you think that if it were possible for it to be taken from us, that Satan would have already done that a long time ago? He would have done it as soon as we got it, if he could could have. The fact is, he can't. And neither can anything else. Romans 8, Paul ends that great chapter with the great assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Next, to follow Christ means that we serve him above all others. Not only do we cherish him above all others, he is more important than all others, but we serve him above all others. John 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me. And that Word, those words, follow me, speaks of behavior. It speaks of how we live. It speaks of our lifestyles. It means to behave in accordance with or in agreement with someone or something. If we serve Christ, we must live like we serve Christ. That's what he's saying. We don't live so that people get confused. As to who we are or what we are. I remember just after, just after I'd been saved, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't very long. I was witnessing to everybody. I didn't know how to witness or do anything. I just know what had happened to me and I wanted to tell everybody in the world about it. And so, what, who did I tell? Well, I was only around these 70 guys that I work with every day. So I was telling them over and over and over again. And there was this one fellow that, that got it in his, I, what I said must have, must have stuck in him the wrong way. And he, he got after me almost every day that I would go to work. Almost every day. Well, in the military, it's common to have drinking parties at, on the job. And so one day, I didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, I, I, I had to go to the dental clinic, I remember. So I walked over to the dental clinic, which is a mile or two away from the hangar. Got my teeth worked on and I was walking back and this car pulls up next to me and it was some of the guys from my, from my hangar and so I just hopped in their car. They gave me a ride back and I thought it was kind of strange they didn't stop in the parking lot, they pulled right up next to the hangar. So I hopped out, they, they opened the, the trunk and, and out comes the case after case after case of beer. They were going to have a beer party. And one of them said to me, hey, no free rides. And he shoved a case of beer in my hands. Well, I didn't know what to do. 
So I turned and carried it into the building. And who do you think was standing right there when I walked in? <laughs> that guy. Oh, he said, look at this. Really loud like that. Look at this. Snyder, you're just inviting me to have beer at this beer party, aren't you? And, and everybody chuckled and laughed. And I was sick. I was sick inside. Why did I feel like that? I knew they were going to drink and get drunk and, and all of that. Why did I feel that way? It was because that's not what my Savior wanted. Not what He wanted. It means we serve Him above all others, regardless of the cost. Next, it means to follow Christ means that we love others the way He loved them. John 13, now the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. This has got to be one of the hardest things in the world for us to do. Is to love others when they're not so lovely. But that's what Christians do, isn't it? It's what Christians do. They love people. They love people in general. And they love each other especially. And we are to love people to the end. We don't abandon them. We don't shirk them. We just love them. Because that's what Jesus did. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how we're to love each other. We're to sacrifice for each other. We give to each other. We help each other. We encourage each other. We're there for each other. Because let me tell you something. When it comes right down to following Christ, the world will not be your friend. We're starting to see that more and more in America. Where Christians are blamed for things that they didn't necessarily do. Next, to follow Christ. I think this is the last one of these. To follow Christ means that we must suffer as his followers. Hmm. Not not good news on the on the physical or or uh, this side of life scale, is it? And yet it's true. For this you have been called, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. When we follow Jesus. It is the road to suffering. His life was suffering. He was rejected. He was cursed. And he was killed. Acts chapter 14 verse 22. The strength that the souls of the disciples were strengthened, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. No one enters the kingdom 
without suffering. No one. Suffering is God's way of proving that Christ is worth it. And when we suffer and we maintain our faith and our trust in Christ and we show He is the most important person in our lives, that we love Him and we love others because of Him, when that happens, He is proven to be worthy of our worship and He is glorified in our lives. These are all biblical realities, these things we've looked at. They're biblical realities. And there are principles that flow from being a disciple of Christ that bring about some inescapable truths of application to us. I think I listed four of them. The first one is that we must all have a master. But none, no master is more gentle or more loving than Jesus. Our old master, sin, and Satan was not a loving master. He was a hard and they were hard and brutal taskmasters. Paul states very clearly in Romans chapter 6 verse 16 that whatever controls us is our master. So we have to ask ourselves, what is controlling my life? Is it me? Am I, is my flesh controlling my life? Is it my family that's controlling my life? Does my work control my life? Even good things can become bad things when they become controlling things. The Jews were enslaved to their Judaism. It became a heavy burden But in contrast, Jesus' burdens are light. Listen to what he says, Matthew 11, 29. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a a wooden thing that fits around an oxen's neck and they pull the plow with it. He says, my yoke is light. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. Rest for your soul is found in the yoke of Christ. We must all have a master. It should be Jesus. It must be Jesus. Number two, although the requirements for following Jesus are great, He never commands us to do anything that He does not by His Spirit empower us to do. Beautiful promise that whatever he tells us to do seems like an impossibility is not an impossibility to him. With such rigorous demands, how can he say that his burdens are light? The Jews' religion was heavy and hard to bear. Listen to what he said about them in Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Sound like the dead religion of the world? It is. It's heavy. 
It has all kinds of demands and rules and regulations that are hard to bear and hard to keep. With promises that never come true. They demand sacrifices with no return. And yet, when Jesus gives us a difficult task, He is always the one doing the heavy lifting. Don't you like it when someone else does the heavy lifting? I used to work with a fellow. His name was George Herbist. He was from Maine. He was he was short. He was about that tall. Ex-Marine. He was like this. He could run like the wind. And he was as strong as an ox. And I always loved it. I worked in a marble... Uh, I worked in a cultured marble plant. We made bathtubs and sinks and shower walls out of marble dust. And bathtubs, six-foot marble bathtub is extremely heavy. And I used to have to go out and deliver those to, to houses that were being built. And I always loved it when George went with me because when George went with me, he did the heavy lifting. And he could do it. I couldn't do it. Jesus does all the heavy lifting. They went out and preached everywhere. Get this, while the Lord worked with them. Hear that? When you go out as a Christian and you are witnessing to someone or you are, you are telling why you live a certain way or why you do or don't do the things you do, Understand that Jesus is there and He is the one that is doing the work behind the scenes, not you. You can't change anybody and neither can I. But what you can do is you can just do what God says, obey what He says, tell what you know from Scripture, and then leave it with Him. He'll do the heavy lifting for you. Number three, I think this is. It is to disciples only that the Lord reveals His truth. Now get that. It is to disciples only that the Lord reveals His truth. The Lord spoke to His disciples in ways that were hidden from the masses of people. Mark chapter 4 verse 34 says he explained everything privately to his disciples. Listen to this passage from Mark 4 verses 11 and 12. He said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why were they in parables? So that they indeed may see but not perceive. So that they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I've made known to you. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 2. 
that God has revealed the things of the Spirit to us, to His disciples, to His church. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned just to his disciples. Number four, to disciples, there is nothing God will withhold for our good. And the things that he takes away, he always replaces with something better. Eve was deceived into thinking and believing that God had withheld something that would make life better. He didn't withhold anything. He hadn't withheld anything. It was a lie. God knows that if you eat of this, Eve, you'll be like Him. You won't be like Him if you don't eat of it. So you're going to miss out on some really good things if you, if you don't do this. Sound like the same ploy that's used today? It is. It hasn't changed. Satan is still trying to convince people that discipleship is too hard, too strict, too out of touch with the rest of humanity, and, it's, and that it could not possibly make anyone happy. Which is what everybody wants, to be happy. He displays it all on the negative scale. But God's promise is that He will not hold withhold anything that is good from His children. Psalm 84 verse 11. Now He does withhold some things, but even the things that He withholds are for our good. His promise is found in Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there... Is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time of houses and, and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. There's the suffering part of it. And in the age to come, what? Eternal life. Wow. You're going to suffer here. You're going to be deprived here. You're going to feel rejected here. But even those things turn out to be good things. He withholds no good thing. Do you trust Him to do what is best for you and your family? That's the real question. Do you trust Him to do best? We often hear the phrase, we have the best of both worlds. But the best that this world can offer is only a pittance to what Christ offers. For what He offers here now is peace and love and joy and a life that is worth living. And in the next life, eternal life. 
All of this was involved in Jesus' command to Philip to follow me. Now notice the next phrase. I've got about seven minutes here. The next phrase, Philip. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. This gives us an indication that Philip would have known Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida was on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. The name Bethsaida means house of fishing, which makes sense seeing that Andrew and Peter and James and John were all fishermen. And they followed Jesus from that town where they were fishermen. However, it is a it is a remarkable work of grace that we see here being done by the Holy Spirit. For we find Peter and Andrew, who both followed Jesus from that same town, probably originally from Bethsaida, living and working out of Capernaum. Mark chapter 1 tells us. Bethsaida was located in Galilee and was a heavily Gentile town in a heavily Gentile region. It was near Bethsaida that Jesus fed the 5,000. It was Also, the place where he healed the blind man and restored his sight in Mark chapter 8. So Bethsaida was an important place. Notice the next phrase. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Nathaniel said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? There's a lot of people who make a, who make fun of a lot of places that they're not from. When I was growing up it was West Virginia. Minnesota, it's Iowa. I mean, every place has another place that they make fun of. Galilee was the place. If you were from other than Galilee, you would make fun of Galilee. Notice we have this recurring word, found, which gives us that mental picture of Philip leading or taking hold of Nathaniel's arm and saying, come, come, we've found the Messiah. We've found him. Like Andrew did with Peter. And now Philip with Nathaniel. We have found the Messiah. Nathaniel is probably the disciple named Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels, where the list of apostles are given. Nathaniel's name does not appear in the synoptics, but Bartholomew appears there. 
Not much is given in Scripture about this disciple other than what John tells us about his meeting Jesus. Philip knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And he told Nathanael that they had found, which is the same word as used three times before, they had found the Messiah. The term law and prophets in this context speaks of all of the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament. In other words, you look in the Old Testament, what do you see? You see Jesus Christ. In every book, in every chapter, in every story, Jesus is there. This is what, this is what Philip is saying to Nathaniel. We found the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament and the prophets speak of, the one that Moses spoke of. When Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like unto me, him you will listen to. Over and over we have it, Matthew 5 and Luke 16 and Acts 13 and Romans 3. It's over and over in the New Testament. There have been many skeptics who have tried to discredit Jesus as the Messiah, saying that he is not really the Messiah. It's one thing to be a skeptic. It's another thing to be an honest skeptic. Because there are many skeptics who discredit Jesus who have never, ever, even once investigated their claims. Many who question Jesus as the Messiah have never taken the time to find the more than 300 prophecies that have been fulfilled that fit perfectly in Jesus Christ. Jesus confronted the skeptics in John chapter 8. He said, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you'll die in your sins. They said, who are you? Who are you? He says, I've already told you. You didn't listen. This fulfillment of the prophets and the the Old Testament prophecies was the message of the early church. Listen to Acts chapter 3 verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled in Jesus. Acts chapter 10. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 26. When Paul stood before the the crowd, he says, To this day I have kept... I have had help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So I ask you, are you convinced Having never seen, having never heard personally with your ears, are you convinced and do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, the words that Jesus spoke to Peter are yours. 
This did not come from you, but it came from my Father who is in heaven. Have you placed your soul in his hands for the forgiveness of your sins? And are you following him? I trust that we are. I trust that we will. And we will count the cost. You see, counting the cost only happens when you're faced with counting the cost. And then you have to think, am I willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus through this whatever it might be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and worship and sing the songs of praise to you and to open your word and have it challenge our hearts and have it convict us of our, of our sinfulness and our, our weaknesses. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the light of your kingdom, that we would, that we would live in the promise of eternal life, that we would take up our cross daily and follow you wherever you go. For where my servant, where I am, there my servant will be also. He follows, they follow me, he said. And so I pray that we would do that faithfully for the glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.